Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. It really is an honor to be able to share God's word with you guys this morning. And just before I get started, and as I put my glasses on here, uh, I just wanted to take a minute to uh, let you people know what a special place Missio Day is. You have a really good thing going here. Uh, lots going on here. You, you've got solid biblical preaching and teaching every week. You have heartfelt, beautiful worship. You love God, and it's clear that you love each other. You have a heart for helping people who are in need. And you have a godly group of leaders and elders who are really taking seriously their call to shepherd this body of believers. And it's clear to to me that uh, you people don't just want to come to church now and then on Sundays, but you want to be an alive, active church, actively fulfilling the mission of God. Let me tell you, those are the marks of a really great church. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this Advent season as we celebrate the coming of your son Jesus into this world. Father, I pray that your spirit will speak through me this morning. I pray that you will soften our hearts to receive the teaching of your word. I pray that this morning you will meet each of us at our point of need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, can you believe it? Christmas is just 20 days away. And you know, one of the popular songs that you hear this time of the year playing all the time is it's the most wonderful time of the year. And that's true for a lot of us. I mean, we look forward to this time. We we mark it on our calendars and there's just something really special, almost magical about the Christmas season. And yet, Would you agree that sometimes Christmas can be one of the saddest and most disappointing times of the year? It's kind of hard to understand, but sometimes there you are singing Christmas carols or listening uh, to music on the radio or shopping or driving around, and all of a sudden, this wave of sadness just sweeps over you so intensely that you almost feel like crying. Has that ever happened to you? I know it has for me. And a message I heard years and years ago helped me to start to come to grips with why it is that sometimes we have these very ambivalent feelings at Christmas. Well, this uh, strange sadness and disappointment around this Christmas season is what I want to talk about this morning. And specifically, we want to take a look at, first of all, why it is that we sometimes get sad and Hey, yeah, maybe even depressed this time of year. And then we want to see what we can do about overcoming the disappointment of Christmas. First of all, then, why? Why do we experience this strange mixture of joy and sadness, of hope and disappointment? Well, part of the reason may be this the insane, hectic schedule that we we try to keep this time of the year. I mean, all the Christmas parties and all the Christmas concerts and plays and school functions, Christmas shopping and all that traffic, doing all that on top of our other regular responsibilities, we can easily get physically and emotionally just run down, just exhausted. 
Or maybe for some, this mixture of feelings is due to an inability to recapture the magical globe which Christmas once held for us when we were little children, right? Uh, Christmas as an adult just isn't quite the same thrill as Christmas as a child. Still others are sad at Christmas because it has a way of accentuating or drawing attention to estranged family relationships or maybe to the recent loss of a loved one. I'm sure there are other reasons as well, but this morning I would like to suggest a much deeper reason for this mixture of joy and sadness, hope and disappointment. You see, for those of us who are Christ followers, Christmas is a time of great joy and hope because Christmas marks the awesome entrance into our world of Christ, our Redeemer, our Savior. And that reality just stirs up in us tremendous hope and expectation. And that joy and hope is reflected in so many of the Christmas carols that we sing. For example, we sing joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth Receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. Hallelujah. That's what it's all about, right? So why the sadness? Why the sadness? I'm convinced that sadness comes from the fact that those very expectations which stir up such joy in our hearts simply have not been fully realized. Yes, joy to the world. The Lord has come, but what does the very next line say? Let earth, talking the whole earth, receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And the sad fact is that the earth as a whole has not received her king. You know, every heart has not prepared him room. No, instead, the earth as a whole has pretty much rejected her king, and millions and millions of people all over the planet have hardened their hearts towards Christ. The hymn, Joy to the World, goes on, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Now, those are tremendous words which, again, can bring us great joy to think about. But do those words really describe the world that you and I live in today? I don't think so. And as we look around, it's painfully obvious obvious that where we live, sins and sorrows seem to be growing out of control. And the curse seems to be more pervasive and widespread than ever. Do you hear what I'm trying to say here? Christmas stirs up in us both joy and sadness because the very expectations that, that stir up the joy haven't yet been fully realized. So the first point I like to make is that one of the reasons we are sometimes sad at Christmas is because of the profound disappointment of unfulfilled expectations in our lives. There's a man that we read about in scriptures, a godly man who perhaps experienced this mixture of joy and sadness and hope and disappointment more intensely than anyone in history ever has. His name is John the Baptist. Now, John was a little bit of a different kind of dude. Uh, This guy hung out in the wilderness, pretty much away from people out in the desert. He wore a camel hair coat, not like this nice one I'm wearing. It was a much much more primitive kind of camel hair coat. And he ate honey, which sounds good. And then locusts, are you kidding me? But make no mistake about it. John was an incredibly godly man. 
Jesus himself, did you know this? He gave John the highest compliment he ever gave to any other human being. He said this, I say to you, among those born of women, that includes about everybody, right? There is no one greater than John. Wow. Now that's some high accolades coming from the Son of God, right? John was a godly man with a missio day. He had a sacred mission which, which the prophet Isaiah had, had prophesied about 700 years earlier. This man, John, had the divinely given task of preparing the way for, of announcing the arrival of the coming one, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And John's whole life is devoted to pointing people to this coming Messiah. And he would say to the people, he that is mightier than me is coming, and I am not even fit to untie the thongs of his sandals. And when Jesus did enter the scene, John took one look at him, and he boldly, enthusiastically proclaimed, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Now, before Jesus arrived on the scene. John was getting just rave reviews in the Jerusalem Times. I mean, he had a very popular grassroots uh, people who were following him, and great crowds would come to hear his bold, powerful messages. In fact, John was so powerful and so dynamic that many people thought that maybe he himself was the Messiah. But then when Jesus came, the crowd started kind of leaving John to go and hear uh, what Jesus was doing and, and saying. And John's disciples felt kind of badly for him, uh, that he was kind of losing his popularity. And then they came to John the Baptist and said in John 3, 26, hey, master, the, the man that you, 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 we met over there on the other side of the Jordan, you know, the one that you said was the Messiah? Well, now he's baptizing too. Now everybody's leaving us and they're going over there to be baptized by him. And it is this point, at this point, we really, really see the magnificently humble, the spiritually mature character of John. Verse 27, John replied, God in heaven appoints each man's work. My work is to prepare the way of that man so that everyone will go to him. You yourselves know how plainly I've told you that I am not the Messiah. I am here to prepare the way for him. That is all. The crowds will naturally go to the main attraction. The bride will go where the bridegroom is. A bridegroom's friends rejoice with him, and I am the bridegroom's friend, and I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater, and I must become less and less. John the Baptist was utterly devoted to Jesus. He was just overflowing in this joy at his coming. But then this amazing thing happened. A little less than a year from that time, as we read in Luke chapter 7, we see that somehow John's joy is gone, just gone, disappeared, vanished. John, this godly, bold prophet of God, has lost his joy concerning Jesus, and now he's riddled with all kinds of doubt and all kinds of confusion. What happened? Well, a lot happened during that year's time. Circumstances for John's life had taken a dramatic turn for the worse. You see, King Herod uh, had taken his own brother's wife, Herodias, and married her. 
Now, I suppose he calls such an act the king's privilege, but John the Baptist called such an act adultery, and he boldly confronted Herod about his sin. And so Herod promptly proceeded to toss John into prison. And from that dark prison cell, John sent a startling message to Jesus. And John's message was was, was painfully short and right to the point. It said, as Luke 7, 20 tells us, are you the coming one or should we expect someone else? Now, I want us to try to get in touch with John's pain and disappointment with this piercing statement, are you the one coming or should we look for someone else? You see, John had given his entire life for this Jesus. And now he wondered if he'd been wrong. He thought God had made it abundantly clear that this Jesus of Nazareth, he is indeed the Messiah. But now, he wasn't so sure at all. Why? Why had John begun to doubt and question Jesus? What was it that had so shaken his confidence in Christ? Well, Luke tells us in verse 18 of chapter 7, and the disciples of John reported to him about all these things. But what are all these things? Is all these things that Jesus is doing all throughout Galilee and Judea in his amazing ministry. But what Jesus had been doing had profoundly disappointed John. Now, what in the world could possibly be disappointing about Jesus' activities? I mean, after all, he was, he was cleansing lepers. He healed a paralytic. He'd been paralyzed all his life. He, he healed a centurion slave long distance. He didn't even have to be there. He said the word, and the man was healed. And right before the present passage, Jesus had miraculously raised a man from the dead. Come on, John. What do you want? How could those things possibly be disappointing? But as we look a little closer at the passage, I think we can see that what bothered John was not what Jesus was doing, but what Jesus was not doing. Jesus, you see, was not fulfilling John's expectations of what he thought the Messiah was supposed to do. And as we look into the text, we can see two levels which John was disappointed uh, in Jesus. First of all, John was disappointed on a theological level. You see, Jesus just did not measure up to John's theological expectations. And we can see from the content of John's preaching that this is true. For example, consider Luke 3.16, John had said, As for me, I baptize you with water, talking about the Messiah coming, but one is coming who is mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You see here in that one one little little, uh, verse, two major theological theological expectations which John had of Jesus. He expected, first of all, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, to put this in his context, you know, in the Old Testament, according to the Old uh, Old Testament prophets, the Holy Spirit was going to be one of the greatest gifts of the age to come. And the prophet Joel records God's promise of the Holy Spirit in this coming age. He says, it will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all humankind. 
Isaiah records the same promised blessing. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring. And God in his word promised that along with this great outpouring of his spirit would come all the blessings of the spirit. Things like joy and healing and forgiveness, wholeness, renewal, new birth. John then was expecting something like Pentecost, the immediate spiritual birth and revival of the nation of his people. But he doesn't see it. Jesus wasn't doing that. But not only was John expecting the Messiah to baptize with the Holy Spirit, he was also expecting the Messiah to baptize with fire. Number two then was John was expecting judgment. Fire is speaking about the judgment of God. And it's interesting, just before Joel's prophecy about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Joel says this a little bit earlier, and Melissa referred to this last week. The day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a fire consumed before them, and behind them a flame burns. Fire symbolized judgment and purifying. And the mighty Messiah would come and, to, and just judge the whole world and is going to destroy all evil and all wickedness. Is going to purge the world of sin and unrighteousness. So John expected these two works of the Messiah. They'd come and baptize the righteous with the Spirit and the wicked with fire. Now here's the point. John was absolutely right to expect these two things of the Messiah. But he was absolutely wrong to expect these two things to occur at the same time all at once. You see, John thought the Messiah would immediately set about the task of judgment and then spiritual blessing, and that's why he sternly warned the people to repent, man, to get their act together, to be ready for the Lord's coming because he's coming. John had, had cried out, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clean out the threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barns, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So he thought the Messiah would immediately effect a radical purging of the world, starting, no doubt, with the Roman Empire. Let's get rid of those guys, number one. What an expectation. Are you kidding me? No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. What an expectation. The king, the Messiah, would destroy all oppressors, all sin, all evil, all wickedness. Can you see now why John was disappointed? You know, he had fervently preached all this stuff, and a year later, Jesus Jesus hadn't judged anybody, nobody. Sure, John was seeing some signs of God's blessing on Jesus' ministry, but what about the fire? As William Barclay puts it so well, John expected to hear the wrath of God is on the march. And what instead does he hear? The mercy of God has come. Now, to make matters even worse for John, he heard that Jesus was actually eating and drinking and associating with the very people he expected would get the axe. Jesus was keeping company with the chaff. He was pouring out his, his love and his, his soul and spirit on unrighteous of all people. John just didn't understand the theological timing of the Messiah's work. And consequently, guys, he was so thoroughly confused and bewildered, and he ended up sending his, two of his disciples, two messengers, to ask Jesus, are you the coming one? Or should we look 
for somebody else. But not only, not only was John's disappointment on a theological level, let me tell you, John was disappointed on a personal level as well. Now, remember from where John had sent his messengers to Jesus? He was lying in a cold, musty dungeon, captive to an evil, uh, adulterous man. There John was, picture this, the herald of the king of kings being imprisoned by an unrighteous king, the likes of which the Messiah was supposed to destroy. Just imagine John the Baptist in that cold, dark dungeon. He could probably hear singing and dancing in the castle above as Herod and his friends got drunker and drunker and drunker as the night got longer. Not only that, John saw absolutely no indication that Jesus is doing anything to get him out of jail. Make no mistake about it. John's message was intensely personal. When he asked, are you the coming one? He was saying this, if you are the king whose arrival I've given my life to, to announce, then what am I doing in prison? You're healing everybody else. What about me, Jesus? Can you identify a little with John sometimes? John was profoundly disappointed, theologically, because uh, Jesus wasn't doing what he thought the Messiah was supposed to be doing, and personally, because Jesus was liberating others, but was letting him sit in prison. Can't you relate to that? I'm sure all of us have been disappointed by some unfulfilled expectations that we have had of God. I think it's true that we sometimes become disappointed when God doesn't act the way we think he should act. For example, doesn't God's sense of timing seem totally out of whack sometimes? Do you find yourself sometimes saying, oh God, why don't you act now? Why can't you change the way that things are at work now? Why can't I be relieved of these horrendous financial pressures I'm under now? Or have you ever said or, or felt like saying, God, I've been praying for this person's salvation for years and years and years. Why, why, God, you continue to delay answering that prayer? Maybe you feel like saying, God, I thought marriage would be different from this. I thought that by now you would have heard my prayers and you'd turned around my spouse and we would be a close, happy couple. But instead, we're growing apart. We hardly ever even talk to each other unless we're fighting. Or maybe you feel like saying to God, God, we have prayed and prayed and prayed for our children. Our friends have prayed for our children and we've tried to raise them right. I thought you would have moved in their lives by now, but... But you haven't. They're about as far away from you as they could possibly be. Well, God, you know how we long in our hearts to, to have children. And we have prayed and we have done everything the doctors told us. But God, you just haven't given us a child. And then D, we sometimes become disappointed when God doesn't deliver us from a terrible situation we have begged him to deliver us from. And we wonder, why? God, if you really are all-powerful, you can do anything, then why haven't you delivered me? Why did you let me flunk that class? I studied really hard for it. Why didn't you protect me from, from that car running into me? Why didn't you protect me from that 
serious illness that I'm grappling with today. Why, where were you, God, when I got fired? These questions are, why haven't you delivered me, God, from the painful prison of the horrible circumstances that I find myself in? Maybe your life this morning is in total turmoil. The person sitting next to you may not know it, but it is. And you just can't understand what in the world God is doing or is not doing. Maybe your life is so far away from your game plan that you can just break down and cry. If so, if that's you, then you can relate to John. You can relate to him and understand some of the anguish that he felt when he asked Jesus, are you the coming one or should we look for someone else? Well, Jesus answers John's questions on both the theological and the personal level. First, he answers the theological question. Uh, He answers it in this way. Look at Luke 7, verses 20 to 21. When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So Jesus' immediate response at that very time, his response to the messenger's question was to just fly into action and continue to do a flurry of the kinds of things that that John had already heard that he was doing. He was healing people left and right. He was restoring the sight to blind people, Uh, all that. Then in verse 22, and don't, don't miss this, Jesus summarizes what the messengers just saw him doing in the very words and the very phrases which Isaiah the prophet uses to describe the activities of the coming Messiah. For example, let me give you a couple examples. Isaiah 35, 4 to 6, we read concerning the Messiah. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame will leap about like a deer and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. Or Isaiah 61.1 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, talking about the Messiah, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. And so Jesus tells the messengers in verse 22 this. Jesus replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John the Baptist what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. And the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. Now, guys, with these words, Jesus is clearly saying, in answer to John's theological question, yes, John, I am the coming one foretold by Isaiah. I am fulfilling the role of Messiah. But, John, I'm doing it my way. And in my timing, not yours. You see, John had all of his theological facts in order. Uh, The Messiah would swing an axe. The Messiah would bring judgment, but not yet. That part of his mission was still future. That's going to occur during his second coming to earth, not during his first coming. So John's misunderstanding was with God's time. He just didn't realize that Jesus would not fulfill all of this messianic mission at once. Then, in verse 23, shifting from the theological question, he addresses the personal question. 
He responds, responds in one simple sentence, verse 23, and blessed, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Now, let me kind of paraphrase, I think, what Jesus is saying here. In effect, Jesus is saying, John, I know you are disappointed in me. I know you do not understand, but John, I want you to trust me. Believe in me. Don't allow your confusion over my methods and my timing to trip you up and cause you to stumble and, and walk away from me. I know what you have been preaching. I agree. I too desire all of life that's completely rid of sin and pain and death and evil. But John, 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 you got to trust me. I know what I'm doing. You must let me do it my way and in my time. That was Jesus' answer to John. And guess what? That is his answer to you and me as well if we are in confusion and turmoil and find ourselves questioning God. 21 years ago, I was in my office in Louisiana in our church, and my secretary buzzed me and said, uh, Bill, you got a call from a, a doctor in California. She wants to talk to you. She says it's urgent. So I picked up the phone, and, and this doctor said to me, Mr. Jemison, I... I have some bad news. Your son, Bill, is very ill. He has an advanced case of cancer. You need to get out here as quickly as you can. And so began a year-long battle for my son's life. It made absolutely no sense. Bill was uh, 25 years old. He was in the prime of his life, just starting his career. He had a very promising future ahead of him, and, and he was our firstborn son. He's named after me. He was, I'm the third. He was the fourth. And Bill is so full of life, so bright, so funny, he could make us laugh till our sides hurt. Just, just a wonderful son, and we, we loved him dearly. Why did he have to get struck with catastrophic cancer? We fervently, fervently prayed uh, together with hundreds and hundreds of our friends and family. And, that, and we always submitted our prayers to God's will. But during that year, God just, boy, he drew very near to us. And he provided us in, for us in some spectacular ways. But on October the 10th, 2001, Bill beat us all to heaven. Now, do I know why my son had to die at 26 years of age of catastrophic cancer? No, I don't know that. But here's what I do know. I know my Heavenly Father. And I know that He is good to the very core of His being. And I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that He loves us dearly. And I know that upon the authority of the word of God, that because Jesus miraculously came into this world on that first Christmas and because my son Bill had accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior, that he is right now in heaven, perfectly whole, perfectly healthy, and exquisitely happy. And I know that one day we're going to be there with him. We don't know why Bill had to die but we know that we have a good and loving God and that no 
matter what, we can trust him to do his thing in his way and in his time. And so Roman numeral number two on the outline says, when you are disappointed because things in your life have not turned out the way you hoped they would, trust that God will work out his plan for your life in his way and in his time. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Well, that's kind of hard, isn't it? I mean, it's not the answer we would like, right? I mean, but sometimes uh, the truth is Jesus' response to us is, my son, my daughter, I know you don't understand, but hang in there. Trust me, I know what I'm doing. Listen, there are just plain a lot of things that we human beings will never understand about the eternal God. How could we? He is infinite. We are finite. He has unlimited knowledge. Our our knowledge is extremely limited. He knows how everything's going to turn out. He's the Alpha and the Omega. We don't even know for sure what's going to happen tomorrow, right? God is God. We are not. So, of course, we can't understand everything that he does. So, as with John the Baptist, Jesus asked us to, to lay aside our expectations and preconceived ideas of what we think he should do and just simply trust him to be the Messiah in his way and in his time. Now, that is incredibly hard to do, and it it takes a good bit of faith, but that is why Jesus says, blessed is the man or woman who does not fall away on account of me. Are you the coming one, or should we look for someone else? Let me ask you this morning, where is Jesus not working according to your expectations right now in your life? What would you like to see him do now, which so far he just has not done? Now, the temptation, of course, is to become impatient with God's timing and to just walk away from Jesus and turn from trusting God and start trusting just in yourself or your job, your money, your friends, your doctors, whatever. But Jesus says to us, as he said to John the Baptist, I understand your confusion and your disappointment. Trust me, I am the promised one. Let me be who I am in my way and in my time. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Now, do you see how this message can can help us to overcome the Christmas blues? It can help us to have a much better perspective on Christmas. You see, we can celebrate the coming of the Messiah into this world. This is the glorious and necessary first chapter of that stupendous event of John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But as wonderful as that first chapter is, it is incomplete without the rest of the chapters. You see, we have an advantage over John the Baptist. We have a perspective which he simply did not have. We know that Christmas is incomplete without Easter when Jesus rose from the tomb. We know that Easter is incomplete without Pentecost when God sent this incredible outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so after, and Pentecost is incomplete without the second coming of Christ. And so after we rejoice over Christmas and the first coming and all that he accomplished then, then responding to this Jesus who came and died and rose again, we pray, come Lord Jesus. 
I welcome you into my life. Let me be controlled by your Holy Spirit. Use me, God, to carry out your plan of salvation in this world. And also, looking forward, we we look with great expectation, and we also pray, come, Lord Jesus. Come again and finish what you began. Come and make this world a place where sins and sorrow grow no more, a place where thorns do not infest the ground, where your blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let all the earth receive her king. Let every single heart prepare him. Dear God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for showing us that even giants of the faith like John the Baptist sometimes had questions about you. Lord, for those here this morning who are struggling, who are confused about what you are or are not doing in their lives, reassure them that you are a good, good father, that you love them and that you can be trusted to work even difficult and painful things out for their eventual good. Thank you, Jesus, for coming into this world 2,000 years ago. Thank you for your willingness to go to the cross and take onto yourself the punishment for our sins that we fully deserved. Thank you that when we place our trust in you for the full forgiveness of our sins, that we are able to instantly become members of your family forever. Father, we are looking with eager anticipation for your return when you will come again and make all things new. In the meantime, Father, help us to live our lives for you. Help us to be like the angels who appeared to the shepherds that first Christmas night. Help us to be like them, joyfully sharing the good news about Jesus to a lost and dying world. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.